Chris Connor, your host for CC Life Science. Today we're talking about what is nearly a franchise model for comprehensive genomic testing in oncology. I'm excited to jump into it, but before we do, a little reminder. Your deepest insights are your best branding. Nothing is more sticky in your customer's brain than being enlightened by you on a topic they care about. The challenge is often to present those insights in a way that's convenient for both the expert and the audience. That's my job. I interview executives and subject matter experts to reveal those insights and develop media based on those interviews for use on your social, web, and third-party channels. If that sounds interesting to you, there's a link to my calendar in the show notes to schedule a short chat. Now, let's learn about this interesting model from the Genomic Testing Cooperative. Jeffrey Owen is the VP of Marketing at the Genomic Testing Cooperative. Today, we're going to talk about genomic testing, of course, their unique model for doing this and how artificial intelligence is being applied in this case. Jeffrey, welcome to CC Life Science. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate the opportunity. So just for context, give us a little bit about your background before we get into the genomics part of things. Sure. So I worked at Genomic Testing Cooperative about two and a half years now um, and have worked in genomics and genetics and biotech as, as sort of an umbrella industry for about 15 years now. Really started at an entry level at a germline company and, and have worked my way into somatic testing, um, primarily been involved in the next-gen sequencing space, although I have done some stints at companies that do chemistry and immunoassay and more core lab work. And I've also sold... Um, you know, medical devices and other lab equipment uh, over my career. But uh, GTC is my, my current location and um, really is doing something disruptive. And I always like people that are pushing the envelope and uh, doing innovative things. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's what we're all about here on this podcast is checking out all those innovations, whether it's the technology or the business model. So tell us a little bit about what the Genomic Testing Cooperative is what it does and the model that you work under. Sure. So GTC was founded at the very end of 2018 um, by a guy named Dr. Meher Albatar, um, who is a hematopathologist and molecular pathologist by training. He really thought that comprehensive genomic profiling was this really unique uh, technology, but that uh, you know, a lot more people needed to have access to it. At that time, there was a handful of labs really running comprehensive genomic profiling. A lot of people really have interest in bringing this technology in-house to complement their other lab services, like more routine lab work, like chemistry or immunoassay or fish or flow or IHC. So uh, he started this company, a building on the, the comprehensive genomic profiling technology to help sort of democratize and bring this in-house to more people. Previously, the only real way that you could bring this technology in-house was to buy kits or, you know, buy uh, bioinformatics softwares, hire teams, and try and develop this. And there's actually just a really interesting article in CAP today with College of American Pathologists talking about labs' experiences of trying to bring this in-house and how even though they had done this and maybe bought the greatest kits out there, that there was still a lot of uh, lack of satisfaction amongst their their, um, 
their customer base in the hospitals and whatnot that they worked at, you know, a lot of them described it as a moving target. So GTC, you know, we really have two models that we work together, right? We, we obviously help with the internalization, but, you know, internalizing it is a lot of work, right? Like it just has to be the right situation. It's kind of like getting married to, you don't typically get married on the first date. Uh, some people do, but most don't. <laughs> And then, um, yeah, so most people want to start out with what they're comfortable with and what they know, which is more the traditional reference lab model. And they'll send us samples and we'll send them back reports. We're also willing to white label those and, and help them build their brand. There's actually a great story of a reference lab in Texas called Core Path that works with us. It's in the process of internalization. But they really didn't have a tremendous amount of molecular business to start. But over the past couple of years, really built up their volume. And now we're at the point that they, they have, it, it makes business sense to internalize it and run it there. Um, and then, like I said, there's the internalization model. We help them run the testing in-house. Uh, we help them with their SOP development. We give them equipment lists and other things. So they basically can mirror what's happening in our laboratory, in their laboratory. And what makes us a little bit different than, say, the kit manufacturers or the service providers, we also... We have Medicare coverage decisions on our testing, and we'll help them with a reimbursement um, opportunity. We'll help them basically as a second site running our test with their, their local MAC or Medicare administrative contractor. So th that's what makes us a little bit unique. The other thing is, is that we handle the innovation, and people that are members of the co-op also get to, to share in the IP that's been generated. So um, we, we try to, we really called it more of a genomic franchise and what we call our testing is a living assay because it, it's constantly evolving with the science. Nice. Okay. So a couple things to clarify, or I'm just want to dig into. So when you say comprehensive genetic testing, that could be interpreted. Maybe it is whole genome sequencing, or it's a very large panel or what's in there. Well, and I have a slide kind of on this that talks about the, the biggest problems in next-gen sequencing and oncology today is that, that there is a lot of different approaches. You know, that, that's probably the biggest thing is none of these companies do it exactly the same. Um, there's companies that are doing whole exome, whole transcriptome sequencing, um, and, and it's casting a very wide net. But what you get with that is a lot of things that are, you know, a lot of information that's not really relevant for oncology. Right. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter what the patient's eye color is or hair color or, or other things that just aren't involved in that cardiology related genes. Um, and, and you also tend to have trouble with that, with being a, with the testing being sensitive and specific enough because you're casting such a broad net. You can't really get into um, interrogate the genes that are of most of interest and, and the dynamic measuring range is less because of that. And then you have other approaches um, that are, you know, what we call like single gene or small panel. These were very popular, especially 10 years ago or so, where, you know, next-gen sequencing wasn't so widely used. Other technology like PCR was the primary testing methodology. So people were running these maybe five gene panels, 10 gene panels, or maybe organ-specific, like a lung cancer panel. Um, but we really see the industry as having evolved into these, these comprehensive genomic profiles where they're running a few hundred DNA genes, and in our case, almost a couple thousand RNA genes, where you're really capturing most of the information that's clinically relevant to, to treating cancer patients. And 
like I said, there's a lot of different opinions on the matter. We like to think that ours is the best approach given the technology today. Um, there may come a point in the future where, where other approaches may be better, but but for now, this is the best approach in our opinion. So it sounds like it's, I mean, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, it's targeted towards oncology specifically mm. and maybe a very large panel of things that you're looking at genes and transcripts, it sounds like, together. Correct. Yeah, we're looking at over 1,600 RNA genes currently. RNA is really the up-and-coming um, opportunity in oncology. I, I think DNA is a very well-trodden path, but a lot of people are still just looking at DNA. You're really seeing the need for, for other aspects of RNA to become involved, fusion detection, exon skipping, alternative splicing, and gene expression, which can only really be performed with RNA testing. Got it. Yeah, okay. That was, I mean, I understand what you're saying. That's eye-opening to me because it's not usually how I think about it. But, uh, you know, my graduate work was in rearrangements. And so, I, yeah, I can understand why it's not just how many RNAs from a given gene or a mutant gene, but all these aberrant transcripts that are coming from things that you wouldn't otherwise see in the genome itself. Exactly. Got it. Um, so the cooperative model, I mean, uh, you talk about it, I guess, a little bit when you're describing the internalization or the outsourcing thing, but uh, it sounds like hospitals or laboratories are becoming members of your organization and sharing in this whole thing. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, so it, it really kind of goes to address sort of this inconsistent testing practices thing and, the, and this rapid scientific innovation and the implementation cost. You know, so I, I put this slide up to kind of address that. So our whole co-op model is designed like a lot of other co-op models, like to share resources, to drive down costs, to, to standardize testing. Um, so, you know, people who join the co-op one, they, they get to take part in all the publications that we do. So we're constantly trying to publish. We believe publishing is important, um, sharing what we're, we're doing and, and putting it out there for peer review. We think that's a really important aspect of what we're doing. So we are pushing the envelope on certain things. The other thing is we're trying to come up with consistent testing practices. We, you know, we have a saying here, don't accept partial results. And right now, you know, every cancer patient, if you went to two different hospitals and you were the same cancer patient, the treatment you get would probably be pretty different. Uh, and we really want to help standardize that um, and, and help create some consistency. And we really think there's a lot of benefits to starting with next-gen sequencing up front. There's a lot of resistance from certain groups because, um, yeah, if you look at, like, pathologists, I, I did my entire, bi or my entire uh, work at a prior company on buyer personas of pathologists and oncologists. They're a group of people that really live to follow the rules. So we're trying to show them a better, more cost-effective way. And a lot of groups are starting to do this to show that next-gen sequencing is more cost-effective. So it's trying to get this more as an upfront uh, testing modality as part of our, our co-op model. And just try to make it you know scalable and, and, and affordable for these people to bring it in-house. Um, they also don't need to hire a whole team of people, right? We're basically their bioinformatics pipeline. Our bioinformatics has been developed specifically for our testing, right? So you can't really go buy a bioinformatics pipeline off the shelf. 
and try and marry it to an asset. You, you kind of need those things done in concert. So we've really taken that part out of it. We're handling the innovation. Um, there was a slide I was going to show on this somewhere here. But it's just, this is the pace of innovation in oncology. Um, uh, this is um, how many new uh, therapeutics are being approved, right? So you know, if you look at this chart, something like 60-some therapeutics were approved in 2020, and you probably saw a little dip there because of COVID in 21 and 2022. And I don't have the graph yet for 2023 because we're only halfway through the year. But what you're seeing is this explosion of biomarker-driven therapeutics, the need to comprehensively test for this. Don't I'm not sure this is entirely accurate, but the last time I looked, like if you're in lung cancer, there's nine NCCN recommended biomarkers um, with therapeutics associated with them. And the reality is there's probably even more than that um, when you start to look at it a little bit differently. So we're, we're trying to help people keep up with this pace of innovation, implement precision medicine better. There's a lot of challenges with precision with implementing precision medicine. We believe if we develop a co-op model and we all work together, it will help us advance precision medicine in a better way, help advance next-gen sequencing and really help it reach its full potential. I mean, like I said, hopefully drive down the cost so that it makes it more cost-effective in the insurance company and that other people see the benefits of starting with this up front as opposed to right now where it's really more in late-stage settings that, that, that next-gen sequencing is applied. And, and for a lot of those patients, it's really too late to really get the full benefits of precision medicine. Nice. So I know enough about next-gen sequencing to be dangerous. I know pretty well how the sequencers work. I clearly do not have a, a full appreciation of the workflow. My understanding, my impression, is that it's fairly laborious, can be time-consuming, and maybe finicky. I don't know if that's still true or not. But that's the sense I get. So I like your model in the sense of, first, we're going to outsource it and just see if members of your community I mean, are getting the data they want and making decisions based on that. And then if they have the volume, then you're helping them ramp up to do it themselves. And it sounds like you are essentially, when you say you're managing the IP and the bioinformatics, you're keeping everybody in the system updated. You're essentially updating the software for everyone automatically is, is a simple way to put it. You know, we handle like, you know, bioinformatics pipeline, hiring up a team of molecular pathologists is expensive. And then you also have to have an R&D team. We're sort of taking a lot of that on. You know, I, I guess maybe the other thing, the, the why work with GCC, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like what TCPCs uh, split is, but like a lot of labs offer something called TCPC testing, which stands for technical component, professional component. And a lot of pathologists are scared of next-gen sequencing because they think it's going to take their job. And our company was founded by pathologists who understand that fear, but we, we also want to show them maybe a different way of thinking about it, right? Like, because the next-gen sequencing is coming, right? It, it, like, like, you're trying to stop technology. That's going. It's kind of like maybe a lot of people with AI right now. They're afraid. <laughs> Um, but but this is the new TCPC. The reason pathologists like the TCPC split is because it makes it allows them to generate revenue for their hospital, which is oftentimes one of the things that that is important for their their employment, so to speak. They have to to generate a certain amount of money for the pathology department in the hospital to remain relevant. 
and labs are always under pressure to develop uh, or, or to, to be a revenue source, right? Otherwise, a lot of people are outsourcing those to other labs um, and having them come in and manage those. So we can help them with this, and it becomes a revenue off. The margins are a lot better on next-gen sequencing than they are on some of the traditional routine pathology like immunohistochemistry. Nice. So um, my next question is, and I don't know if it's even relevant to this conversation now, but who's ordering these tests? I mean, oncologists, presumably. Well, pathologists, uh, the ideal situation is the pathologist, the oncologists are working together. Potentially in some more rural situations, you have people that are like pulmonologists or internal medicine where there's maybe not as much access to, to those specialties or they couldn't get an appointment quick enough or whatever it was. So, but it, it's generally those people who are ordering this. And several years ago, I had a conversation with someone sort of around this topic, around genomic testing. And at that time, one of the barriers was um, resistance or uh, a challenge for doctors just with respect to understanding the genomic data and what to do with it. Now, this is, you know, this is several years ago, I'm sure, one, we're better at sequencing, get better data, and can interpret it more clearly now. So what's the status of that? Well, it's still a challenge. Uh, that, that's just the reality, that, that there is a lot more information being given to you. Um, and, and how do you make sense of that? So how do we help with that, and how do we help solve that problem? One, we're, we're big believers in education. So uh, most of our ordering clinicians have our doctor's cell phone numbers. They can call them, you know, really any reasonable time and ask questions about the report. Anytime it's a new client, we typically like to go over the first report with them, help familiarize them with the report. Uh, the other thing that we do is we do workshops. We're doing another workshop in September, uh, September 23rd in Chicago. Um, these are educational seminars about how to use DNA and RNA data and how to apply that in clinical care. They're more interactive workshops. These aren't the types of things you would get from going to an ASK or anything like this. This is more real-world application of how to use this data and how to implement it and what's really possible. Because, you know, precision medicine has a ton of potential, but, but we know from speaking with some of our pharma partners that not always the case that, that the patients are getting the best treatment for their, their cancer. I mean, the numbers are pretty varied. I hear anywhere between 10 and 40% of patients are getting the right medicine. And going back to this chart about the number of new drugs that are, are, are coming out every year, doctors just can't keep up with this. It, it, it's hard. You know, a lot of doctors like to kind of do what they know how to do. But, but we think with education and maybe developing a community where, hey, we're using precision medicine in a standardized way, the genomics is done in a standardized way, we can help come up with better ways of, of, of treating patients. So I, th I think there's a ways to go in this, but, but reality is it is overwhelming. Um, but you, you, know, you can't just use that as an excuse. I, I think you have to sort of embrace, yes, there's a lot coming. But uh, if I work with a group of people who, who embrace this, uh, maybe it's easier to implement and help me understand how to apply this on a daily basis. Right. So can you give us an example? I mean, a, a report comes out, must be calling out certain features that are presumably linked to someone's cancer in some way. And then 
What's the step from that to say, you know, we notice this unusual RNA formation or whatever to how do I go to find the right treatment? Because I'm pretty sure, well, I'm guessing there's not a specific treatment therapy based on that RNA. Well, we'll typically give them therapeutic recommendations in our Okay. So, like, based on the findings, these patients would likely uh, um, have some response to these categories of drugs. Okay. Now, I think you're going to start to see in the future is more combination treatments. Right now, you know, there's a lot of monotherapies, but you're starting to see more combination therapies. Tumors generally tend to be heterogeneous, and that way, you know, there, there's different things driving the tumor. So, you, so just because you treat them with one drug, you might get a, you might kill like the most dominant clone in the tumor, but there's other clones that that will survive, and and the patient will ultimately relapse. And I think that's sort of the the approach that's going to start happening more and more is more combination therapies or new categories of drugs. You know, uh, things like conjugated antibody drugs and and the next generation of immunotherapies. Okay. So there is enough information in the the report and in the data to say, given these mutations or <clears throat> anomalies, here are the likely therapies that you would pursue. Exactly. And like I said, they can always call one of our, our pathologists of, hey, if you were treating this patient, what would you do? Do you get data back on um, success on those things at all or... I mean, that would be of interest to you, right, to sort of refine your recommendations? Uh, I mean, I think that'd be of interest to a whole lot of people. Um, and that is one of the, the benefits of the co-op model. There are certain places like hospital systems where we, they do know the outcomes data, and they are looking at how to use that and how to refine models. Nice. All right, so talk a little bit about <clears throat> how AI is used in these analysis and what that means for your customers. Yeah, so I, I think going back to, to the pathologists and, you know, a lot of pathologists are overwhelmed. Uh, they work very long hours. It's a very tough job. You know, they're a very important part of, of uh, the healthcare community. But, you know, it, it, in this their situation, there's not as many people going into the field of pathology. They're not replacing themselves at the rate that they need to be. Even though there's growing demand, there's a shrinking population of them. So, um AI really helps fill that gap and bridge that gap. Um, you know, the next-gen sequencing is a lot of data, but what the AI really does and the machine learning really does is help narrow down the fields um, of what the likely candidates are. When I, I worked at a company uh, that launched the first exome sequencing test, and they were really struggling to, to go through all the variants of unknown significance, right? Like, and, and this was in germline testing, but it was taking them like a year to turn around a report because they were getting something like a hundred thousand variants that needed investigation. A lot of this stuff had never been seen in this combination before. So now the bioinformatics pipeline and, and, you know, the AI takes what used to take them a year. We, we can nail that down to, uh, you know, the AI can spit it out almost instantly and you can look at it different ways. They, they use different algorithms. Um, I'm not an AI guru, but I've listened to a handful of our talks on it. Um, you know, they use different statistical methods, Bayesian statistics, random forest, leave one out, and some others. And they look at each one different ways and see what, what happens if you change the statistical analysis and then it, it, it narrows things down to a candidate list. So you then look at that. You know, AI is never going to fully replace a human. Um, 
people are still always going to need to be part of this. If someone needs to check it, we're, we're a long ways off from an AI being able to do this entirely on their own. Because like I said, I, I think an AI is very good at looking at a specific set of data and sort of whittling it down to a more manageable set. But you still need someone who goes, yeah, but maybe this this wasn't taken into consideration or this other piece of information needs to be accounted for. And that's how they make the diagnosis off of AI. So really, we see AI as a tool to make uh, to make the pathologist much more efficient in their work and allow them to, to pour through more cases on a daily basis than if they were not to use those sort of um, supplemental tools to, to help them in their work. Yeah, that's how I, that's the most exciting use of AI broadly, in my opinion, is to take massive sets of data and whittle it down to something that a human can then digest. Things that would have taken, as you say, year or more for a human to discover or even to discover patterns that no human would even even notice. Um, so, and then let, let someone make, give them a set of data on which to make a decision. Um, let's finish up just talking about a little bit more about RNA and its use in oncology. And I think we, when we spoke earlier, there was some, you know, that's a, another different challenge for maybe the pathologists and doctors as well. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, a, a, RNA is really kind of, it, it, we're, we're a few years into it sort of being in prime time, right? Like, uh, DNA really had its rise about 10, 15 years ago and, you know, all the potential of DNA. And now we're really just starting to tap into the potential of RNA in, in clinical care. You, know, you have a lot of drugs that target specifically fusions, exon skipping, and those things can only really reliably be detected using RNA. You know, an example, I think, in, in the translocation space, and, and like I said, I'm not a doctor, but my boss is. And I've heard him pitch it a lot to people in trying to explain, so I'm going to do my best job to, to replicate what he says, which is when you look at DNA, you only get one copy of a fusion, whereas when you look at RNA, you get thousands of copies of the fusion, and you can detect the, um, the fusion partner. So, um, you know, you have a lot more confidence in making that call. You know where it's been fused to. So the RNA has a lot of potential with that. The other thing is the gene expression profiling. Like I said that we think that has a lot of potential. Immune profiling is very important for cancer patients because typically they, they have something wrong with their immune system, which is why their body's not attacking and killing the cancer. And we think there's there's a lot of potential for immune profiling going forward. Typically, that's been done by flow cytometry in the past. But we really see that NGS has a chance to do it even, even more comprehensively than, than flow cytometry. Nice. Jeffrey Owen, this has been enlightening for me. I'm sure it will be for many folks. Um, this is all new stuff. i you know fascinated by the whole cooperative model. I think it's a brilliant idea uh, given the challenges around sequencing and data and keeping up with all those things as well as just... Uh, the interesting ways of recommending therapies for cancer treatment. So thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. My pleasure. This is an interesting model. Pathologists and oncologists can take advantage of genomic testing and scale it from an outsourced model to an in-house service depending on volume. GTC is helping with that, maintaining the bioinformatics and keeping that up to date. Ideally, recommendations and outcomes can be tracked to improve the overall success of the program. 
Thank you again, Jeff Owen, for sharing all of that. Hey, if you like this kind of content, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, subscribe to my Substack as well for when I publish other non-audio content. And last thing, please tell your colleagues. Thank you for all of that and see you next time. Bye-bye.